Let's take our third look into the book of Isaiah. Today we'll cover the most amount of text in a single sermon throughout uh, our look in this book. So we're going to go from chapters 13 through 27. That's 15 chapters in one shot, which means that we don't get to read all of the verses and stuff. Uh, quite the opposite. We're going to take a pretty scant look at, uh, at each of the chapters to fly by them. Uh, and you should also be prepared that most of the time will be actually us reading the text and very little of the time we'll be actually hearing the preacher say anything other than what's the reading of the text. Um, that's just because there's only so much real estate we can do, right, with the, uh, w- with the minutes we have. Uh, remind ourselves where we're at. Uh, we, are, we are in chapter 13, which means the first 12 chapters, which establish a unit of thought, uh, demonstrated for us God's judgment on Judah, Right? You remember that uh, God's people were the people of Israel. They were 12 tribes, and then they had a civil war, and 10 tribes uh, in the north retained the name Israel, and then two tribes to the south uh, took the name Judah. And uh, both nations have abandoned God. They had a covenant with God, a contract, an agreement that they would walk in his ways, be obedient to his law, and he would bless them in their land. And the the uh, the conditions that... that uh, contract where uh, if uh, if they were disobedient and if they abandoned God and if they uh, if they went after the ways of the world then God would exile them from the land and uh, and that's kind of where we're at because both nations Israel and Judah have abandoned their faith uh, they go after money beauty pleasure you know they go after things that the world goes after uh, not godliness they oppress the poor uh, they neglect the needs of of, of the weak um, and being at war with each other the northern country, Israel, recruited the help of Syria. And so the people of Judah in the south were scared. And, uh, you know, they could have prayed to God for help. They could have sought him for protection. But instead, they hired a, another worldly power, uh, a military power, the nation of Assyria, to come and aid them and fight the war for them. Uh, and so God declared judgment on Judah, right? He's, he declared judgment on both of them, really. He... Uh, he um, He'd go ahead and use Judah's new friend, Assyria, to, uh, to destroy and conquer, conquer and take over the northern kingdom of Israel. And then he said that, that Assyria would turn, betray, and, and attack Judah. And they'd go city after city and get closer and closer to the capital city, Jerusalem. And right at Jerusalem is where they would stop. They would not be able to conquer Judah. Uh, they would not be able to, to take over Jerusalem. All right, well... Chapters 13 through, through 17, we're going to have a, a, a remark that concerns not Israel, not Judah, but it kind of covers this other question. What about everybody else? Right? Uh, what about all the other nations of the world? And it's a valid question for the people of Israel or the people of Judah because aren't all the nations of the world godless? Right? They worship false gods. They don't worship Yahweh God. They don't worship the God who, uh, who created the heavens and the earth, the one true God. They don't, they don't worship him. Uh, aren't they more wicked? Don't they have cultures where they're sacrificing children to Molech? Don't they have uh, cultures where, uh, where everything about the, their society is depraved or, or moving in a different direction? Doesn't God care about that? Why would God judge Israel and Judah and do nothing about everybody else? And so chapters 13 through 27 is not so much about God and his people, but it's about God and the rest of the nations of the world, 
right? It's, uh, it's about God and all the nations that, that, uh, that defy him, do not worship him, etc., right? And it, it's going to happen in chapters 13, 13 through 27 in three series, three, three series, three series, 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 series of oracles, um, and, uh, and we'll, we'll tackle that in, in three waves then, if you're taking notes. Actually, if you're taking notes, good luck, because we have so much text to cover, and I don't know if you'll be able to write stuff down, because you'll constantly be flipping back, right? But uh, the first series of oracles is where we'll spend most of our time, and that's going to be chapters 13 through 20. And then the second set of oracles is where we'll spend the least amount of our time, and that's going to be chapters 21 through 23, and then uh, the third set of oracles will be uh, chapter 24 to 27, and that'll also be shorter compared to the first, right? So first series of or- uh, oracles, um, an oracle means that's, that's like the message that God gave a prophet, right? When he tells a prophet, like, this is what I want you to say, that's an oracle, right? Um, the first series of oracles will be against major countries. One of them belongs to God. The others are, are Gentile nations, non-Jewish nations, okay? So, first one is Babylon and Assyria. We're going to couple those together because they come in the same oracle. It's to Babylon and Assyria, and I'll explain why. Uh, the first nation, being Babylon as the prime target, uh, is uh, the reason why we're coupling it with Assyria is because Babylon is part of Assyrian Empire, right? So, it's, it's part of Assyria, and so it's weird that the prophecy targets Babylon— Instead of saying Assyria, because, you know, the book has been talking about Assyria. But uh, there's a reason for it, and we'll, we'll get to it as we go. Chapter 13, verse 1, it says, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Right? So this is about Babylon, which is part of Assyria. Look at verse 4. The sound of a tumult is on the mountainside of, uh, as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, Yahweh of hosts, is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, Yahweh and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail for the day of Yahweh is near as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Now what this says is Babylon will be destroyed in a war involving many nations versus God's army that comes from a distant land or comes from the end of the heavens. And it says that this will happen on the day of Yahweh, right? Wait for the day of Yahweh in verse 6, it says. So uh, this seems to be pointing to something in the end times, in the eschaton, end times, right? It's, it's uh, an eschatology issue. It's an end times event. Um, it means that Babylon will be destroyed in the end times, and that war against Babylon will involve many nations, and it'll involve God bringing an army from a distant land or from, from the end of the heavens, right? From somewhere not on earth, right? Uh, Look at verse 9. Behold, the day of Yahweh comes, cruel and with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. What that says is that Babylon will fall on the day of Yahweh, which is when the Messiah comes to end sin, 
right? That's the second coming of Jesus Christ. When he comes back, it's an end times event, and that's when Babylon will fall. And if you notice the description here, it says that there will be cosmic repercussions, right? The sun, the moon, the stars, they'll go dark and they'll be shaken and they'll be, they'll be out of place or something like that, right? And that's exactly, by the way, what's described in Revelation chapter 6, about the tribulation, about the end times, about the return of Jesus Christ. It's, it's going to have cosmic repercussions. It says the sun goes dark, and the moon turns red, and the stars are all out of place. They fall down and stuff. Uh, so there's something happening there where the sky is falling, and, uh, uh, and uh, things are going dark. There's darkness everywhere. So you can't see things, you know, all that kind of stuff. So again, Babylon will fall in the end times, but... This prophecy was not written just to tell you what's going to happen thousands of years later at the end of time. It wasn't just written for that, right? It describes also a different end to Babylon, right? The end we heard so far was that lots of nations, an army from heaven, uh, in the end times, on the day of Yahweh when the Messiah comes back. And then we get to verse 17, and you get a different ending to Babylon. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, which is another word for Babylonians, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. Now the ending described here is that Babylon will fall to the Medes, not to God's army, right? And historically, Babylon does become an empire, after Assyria, you know, Assyria takes over the north, right? And then turns and attacks Judah, and then they fail. What happens? Babylon, which is part of Assyria right now, it becomes its own empire and then turns and destroys Assyria. So uh, Babylon will become an empire. It'll conquer Judah, which Assyria fails to do. It'll conquer Judah, and, uh, and then it'll be there for a while, and, and then Babylon will be overthrown by the Medes, the Medes will team up with, with Persia, and Medo-Persia will kind of be the next empire after the Babylonian Empire. Okay, that's historically what happens. So these verses so far have given us, uh, in the beginning, a, a messianic prophecy about the eschatology, the end times, right? It gives us an end times event, but uh, it also gives us the near future event. Because remember, prophecies oftentimes had a dual fulfillment, right? It had a, a, a near future fulfillment, which is partial, and then an end times fulfillment, which is full and complete, right? Um, the judgment on Babylon is not just God's wrath against sinful nations, though. Uh, it's, it's not just because he hates sin, but it's also because it's a promise to save Israel, to save his people Israel, right? Israel and Judah. To save his people from their greatest oppressor. And Babylon is their greatest oppressor. And, and if you kind of trace Babylon through the Bible, you, you kind of... Note that sin, the origin of sin, uh, is, is really rooted with Babylon and stuff. There, that's a, a discussion we'll have maybe later. Or if you want to go through Revelation, you can do that, and that's where, that's where uh, you'll get a bigger explanation. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. It says, For Yahweh will have compassion on Jacob, which is another word for Israel. Um, Yahweh will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Meaning foreigners from other nations can come and be part of that people, right? That's fulfilled partially when the Medo-Persian Empire conquers Babylon and then lets the Jews return to their land and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it, it will be partially fulfilled when the Medes 
take out the, uh, the Babylonians, but it's fully fulfilled in the end times when Jesus comes and establishes his, his throne in Jerusalem and then everyone can come to, to Jerusalem no ma- from all nations. And that's a, a theme that we'll keep getting throughout the book of Isaiah. So for now, Babylon is a part of Assyria uh, and God brings judgment to the Assyrian Empire using the, uh, eventually using the Babylonians. But look what, uh, look what God says about Assyria as a whole, verse 24. Yahweh of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the, uh, the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. Verse 26, this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For Yahweh of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Now that's, if you just take verses 26 and 27, uh, I'd argue that that is the main idea on all 15 of these chapters. Chapters 13 through 27, right? This is God's purpose. This is God's plan. This is what he set his mind to do. He stretched out his hand over not just Babylon, not just Assyria, but over all nations. And uh, he's purposed it. Who will annul it? Who's going to stop him? Who is mighty enough to thwart his plans, right? He, He stretched out his hand over the whole earth, over every nation, and he will judge each nation. Uh, you get uh, another nation um, that's, that's judged in uh, chapter 14, verse 28 to 32. It's Philistia. Look at the, uh, the judgment. Well, actually, if you don't know who the Philistines are, uh, you know that story of David and Goliath? Remember that, David and Goliath? David was a Jew. Uh, he, you know, he, he eventually became the king of Israel, right? But he was one of God's people. He was Jewish. He was, he was an Israelite. Same thing, right? Um, for our purposes. Some people don't like to say they're the same thing, but Jewish and Israelite, the way that we're using it, same thing, okay? Modern day usage is different. Uh, David was an Israelite or a Jew. Goliath was a Philistine. And uh, David killed Goliath, right? That's the, Goliath is a giant. David had a a sling and he threw a stone, hit him in the head, right? Uh, God's people had this little torpy guy and he throws a rock and he, he slays the champion of Philistia. And that was not just a battle between two uh, warriors, quote-unquote, and David was not really a warrior, he was a shepherd, um, but that was a battle between two nations, a battle between two different faiths, right? It was uh, the true God versus the false God, or a false set of gods. And so, of course, the Philistines hate Israel, and they want revenge. So, when Assyria comes and conquers Israel, Philistine, the Philistines are watching that. How are they going to feel? They're going to be like, yeah, Go Assyria. They're going to be cheering that on, right? They hate Israel. So if someone else comes in and destroys Israel, they're like, I'm down, right? Look at uh, verse 29. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you that the, uh, just the, that the rod st- struck you, the rod that struck you is broken. Sorry, I'm saying that weird. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. And basically that's saying, uh, hey, don't, don't get all celebratory right now, Philistia. Calm down, everybody. Um, just because the Israelites, you know, they, they whacked you on the head and took out your champion, uh, just because the rod that struck you is, is uh, broken, 
right? They've been taken out. Even though God's people are broken, it's nothing to rejoice over because the, the, the serpent that attacked them is going to turn and they're going to attack you. And that's exactly what happened historically. The Assyrians, after they took out Israel, they turned and they took out Philistia, right? A third nation that gets, uh, that gets judged in chapters 15 and 16 is Moab. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. An oracle concerning Moab, because Ar of Moab is laid waste in the night, Moab is undone. Because Kir of Moab is laid waste in the night, Moab is undone. These are major cities in Moab, right? And the rest of chapter 15 poetically elaborates on the scale and the severity of Moab's inevitable doom. Uh, I wish we had the time to go through all of it, you know, because po- like this book is written as poetry, if you notice uh, the Old Testament prophets, right? It's, it's poetic, which means it needs room to breathe. And we're really just extracting the verses that kind of capture the main ideas, but if you, if you read the chapters, it gives you a lot more time to kind of explore the, the depth of the emotion and the expression given by the author. But what happens after Moab is gone? Verse 5. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. So it says, after Moab is gone, there will be a king sitting in the tent of David, meaning in Jerusalem. Right, and he'll judge uh, and seek justice. He'll he's swift to do righteousness, meaning he will be the new Davidic king. And we know that there's only one Davidic king left. It's the promised king. It's the Messiah. So all of a sudden, this uh, this prophecy about the destruction of of Moab, which historically happened, also is an end times prophecy that's fulfilled in the in the time when Jesus returns. So you kind of, you, you get the dual fulfillment thing again, right? When Moab is gone, there will be a king from the line of David sitting on the throne. That's Jesus. So that's, that's the full fulfillment. The partial fulfillment in history was that Moab was destroyed. As God said, they would be destroyed. Their major cities fell and all that kind of stuff. Another uh, nation that's, that's judged is, uh, is Israel. Damascus is the way that it'll be uh, uh, referred to in the beginning because that's the capital of Syria. But Damascus and uh, Syria and Israel were allied, right? And so when Damascus is be, being uh, judged, so is Israel. So look at uh, chapter 17, verse 1. An oracle concerning Damascus, which is the capital of Syria. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. And in that day, the glory of Jacob, uh, sorry, verse four. In that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. Verse 10. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your salvation or the rock of your refuge, right? This is why judgment comes not just on Syria, but also Israel, because of their alliance, right? Israel forgot the God of their salvation, the rock of their refuge. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you forget God, judgment is coming your way. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you remember the Lord and turn from your ways and actually trust in him, then salvation comes your way. Right, So uh, the judgment that's being proclaimed here is on Syria and Israel because both have left the ways of God. And yet, throughout this book, you keep getting this remark of all nations being brought to Jerusalem, uh, and it's all those who turn in faith. Right? Um, a, uh, another nation that gets judged is uh, Cush in chapter 18, Cush, which is also known as Nubia or Ethiopia. Not modern-day Ethiopia, but 
Back in that time, it had the name Ethiopia. Chapter 18, verse 1. Ah, land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush. Right? So it's addressed to Cush, verse 2. To a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. Now, I want you to uh, just kind of bookmark in, in your mind that description there. A nation tall and smooth, a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. Right? So it's like this, uh, it's a very grand description of these people as mighty warriors and who are, uh, who are large in stature, etc. Right? When Assyria eventually attacks Judah, uh, it attacks all the way up to Jerusalem, and then what's going to happen is Judah is going to call to Cush for help, right? They're going to say, hey, Cush, come and help us and stuff, and they're going to call to Cush and to Egypt. So uh, Cush is going to try to respond and stuff, but uh, Cush is going to get destroyed. And so verse 6, they shall all of them be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. Verse 7, at that time, tribute will be brought to Yahweh of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of Yahweh of hosts. Right? What this is, is a remark that the judged nation of Cush will have some of its people come to Jerusalem in the end times to worship God. Right? It's an end times event. Uh, Cush was a strong nation at the time, and it's the, the, the uh, dynasty from Cush was actually the dynasty that was ruling Egypt, which is why Egypt is the final nation that's judged in this first set of oracles. So look at Egypt in chapters 19 through 20, uh, looking at chapter 19, verse 1. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians. Look at verse 4. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord Yahweh of hosts. Verse 5. And the waters of the sea will be dried up, and the river will be dry and parched, and its canals will become foul, and the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. Um, shortly after this, uh, this prophecy was given, the Nile, the Nile River, which is the economy of, of Egypt, uh, it, it started to miss its annual flooding. And because of that, the economy collapsed which is exactly what's talked about in verses 5 and 6, right? And then after that, Egypt was conquered by many nations, not just one. It got conquered several times. Um, what was once a powerful empire is reduced by infighting and uh, by natural disaster, like you know the, the Nile River not flooding, um, and uh, by foreigners, foreign nations coming in and attacking. All of that was, uh, was historically what occurred. All of that is what was prophetically proclaimed. Right, uh, verse seven. All of this uh, d- did happen in history, but then uh, there is a messianic fulfillment to it. There is an end times fulfillment in verse seventeen. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that Yahweh of Hosts has purposed against them. Right, and what that says is Judah, the the, uh, the nation that contains Jerusalem, that will become a terror to the Egyptians. Now, that hasn't happened ever to Egypt or to anyone, 
this is future. This is an end times event. And in the end times, when Jesus returns, Judah will be the, uh, the power of the world because that's where Jesus' throne is, right? That's where everyone will, uh, will feel terror, meaning they, like they, you, you will not have the, uh, the, the courage and the, and the stupidity, really, to challenge the king of kings, right? Uh, there will be a, an understanding that Jesus is God, he's on his throne, and he's just not to be messed with. Like, no one's going to try to, uh, to take out uh, the land of Judah. Verse 21. And Yahweh will make himself known to the Egyptians. And watch this. And the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to Yahweh and perform them. Verse 24. In that day, Israel will be the, uh, will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. That is clearly a future messianic end times event fulfillment, right? It's telling you that at the end, Cush, Egypt, Assyria, they'll all be destroyed. And yet still in the midst of judgment, God always offers hope and salvation that there will be some saved from Cush and Assyria and Egypt and Israel, right? All of the people that are judged are judged. And yet still those who turn in faith will be saved, right? It is not uh, a, a... uh, broad scale condemnation with w- without exception it is a uh, it is a judgment that 's declared on each of the nations, and yet still the offer of salvation is given to everyone in those nations and by god 's sovereign foreknowledge, he knows that the nations are just you know broad is the road that leads to destruction, but a few will find the way to life right uh, verse uh, chapter twenty verse four. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, right? Saying, uh, and is bringing it back to the the historical fulfillment, the near future fulfillment in Isaiah's time. Uh, The king of Assyria, he's going to take out uh, the the Egyptians and he's going to take out the Cushites, right? Uh, Verse six, and the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, behold, this is what happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And, how, uh, and we, how shall we escape? That remark is like, look, we looked to Cush and we looked to Egypt for help. And this is what happened to the people that we looked to for help, right? That's what happens when we look to worldly power for deliverance instead of God for deliverance. That's kind of the idea that, uh, that is being said here by, by Judah. Um, This first series of oracles tells us that God is in sovereign rule of the nations and holds them accountable for their deeds, right? That, uh, that he, he's not just letting history go by and like, oh yeah, I guess they're bad people, but you know, what can you do? That's just the curse of sin. He's not, he's not saying that at all. He's saying every nation will be judged. Everyone will be held accountable and he has attention to the, the nation as a whole and he has attention to individuals, right? The ones who respond. So, uh, so you kind of get that, 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 that big picture look at, uh, at how every nation will be brought, every wicked nation will be brought down and destroyed. God promises an end to all nations and only his kingdom will stand. That's, that's his idea, right? And that's, um, the major theme of the book of Daniel, by the way. Um, it, this certainly had its fulfillment, uh, in its, in the historical time shortly after Isaiah wrote it, but it also points to the end times how God will judge the world. Now we get a, this 
the second series of oracles, right? It's a, a short little thing of, of uh, oracles. Another five countries which are going to be judged. Um, and uh, again, one of these countries is a country that belongs to God. Okay, so starting with Babylon um, as the first. Uh, chapter 21, verse 1. It says, the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. That's, uh, that's the description for Babylon, the wilderness of the sea. Look at uh, in the middle of verse 9. It says, fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. So this second series of oracles begins with, uh, with judgment against Babylon. And if you remember, the first series of oracles began with judgment against Babylon. So... Babylon is mentioned twice. Why? Well, this time Babylon seems to be mentioned um, kind of on its own, not really as a part with with Assyria. And there's this other judgment uh, given against it. And it's it's hard to say why, but uh, Babylon becomes a theme whenever whenever God is talking about uh, sin and the end times. Babylon is the theme. And if you if you look at uh, at the book of Revelation toward the end of it, um, that final war that Jesus has when he returns, that, that, that war that he has against the nations of the world, they're all called Babylon. They're all just called Babylon. So this is a remark that all nations will be destroyed. Uh, all of God's enemies will be done away with, right? Here's a second nation that's, that's mentioned in chapter 22, verses 11 through 12. Um, it's the nation of Edom. Edom, which came from Esau, uh, the, uh, the brother of uh, Jacob. Uh, verse 11, it says, the oracle concerning Duma, which is a, a play on words. I'll, I'll explain that in a sec. Uh, the oracle concerning Duma, one is calling to me from Seir, which is another word for Edom. One is calling to me from Seir, uh, watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says, morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. It's very clear, isn't it? Right? Uh, I don't know about you, but if you read that, I have no idea what that's saying. So you have to like dig around for it and stuff. First, you have to realize that Seir, S-E-I-R, is the country of Edom. It's the same name. It just goes back and forth. Don't know why. Um, and it's also referred to as Duma, which is, which is just a way of saying a land of silence, a land of stillness, or sometimes even called the underworld, right? So it's, it's like a, an affectionate nickname in a way. It's also uh, like a little region inside Edom. But someone is asking, hey, what time of night is it? What time is it, right? And figuratively, that's saying like, when will the darkness end, right? How far along are we in this dark period where, uh, where Assyria is oppressing us as a nation? The Edomites will be asking that. How long is Assyria going to own Edom, what time of night is it? What time of night is it? How close are we to the end of it, to the end of the darkness? And the, uh, the answer back is silence, basically, from the land. The, uh, the watchman says, look, morning comes, meaning we'll be free from Assyrian oppression, and then also the night, which means we'll be under a whole new oppression, which is going to be Babylonian. Uh, if you'll inquire, inquire, otherwise come back again, you know, d- saying like, look, it's going to be nation after nation after nation that, that takes out the nation of Edom. Have you met any Edomites? Of course not, because what happened to that nation? It just uh, conquest after conquest after conquest, it was just taken over so many times that it just kind of dissolved. Another nation that's, uh, that's judged is Arabia in chapter 22, verses 13 to 17. Look at verse 13. It says, the oracle concerning Arabia, right? Verse 16. For thus the Lord said to me, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. 
And that's, a, that's basically a remark of the, one of the, the origins of Arabia, one of the, people, the men that it descended from, right? Akedar was a son of Ishmael. All right, uh, verse 17. And the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few, for Yahweh, the God of Israel, has spoken. Um, here's what, basically it just says, uh, the, the descendants of Kedar, which is Arabia, they will be judged. Fine. But what's terrifying about this oracle is that it gives a time frame, right? Uh, verse 16, for the, the Lord said to me, within a year, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. Within a year. And within a year, the Arabians, the descendants of Kedar, were destroyed. That nation was destroyed, right? Yes, we have Arabians today, but that nation that was referred to as Arabia at that time was destroyed historically. We get another nation that's judged. It's uh, the nation of Judah um, with its capital, Jerusalem. And uh, it's referred to differently here in chapter 22, verse 1. The oracle concerning the valley of vision, which is such a cool name. And yet uh, the irony of that is that it's held against the people of Judah. It's the valley of vision because uh, Jerusalem, if you remember, Jerusalem is on two mountains, Zion and Moriah. And by mountains, they're really just hills. You can walk up and down them in just a few minutes. It's not, they're not like mountain mountains, you know, where you need climbing gear. There are these little hills. And Jerusalem started off on Mount Zion and then spread out to Mount Moriah. Uh, and there are three valleys uh, uh, that uh, are in contact with these two mountains, right? Because if you have two mountains, you have a valley uh, on the left and right and in the middle of these two mountains. So you have the Hinnom Valley, you have the Teropium Valley, and then you have the, uh, the um, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm forgetting the, the last name, the Kidron Valley, okay? Uh, the Valley of Vision is most likely that, uh, that one in the middle, the Teropian Valley, uh, the Central Valley, and that's where a bunch of prophets were in Jerusalem, and these prophets were having visions. So that was that was... Uh, called the Valley of Vision. It's this little, little dip in the middle of Jerusalem where they would uh, be talking to God and God would be talking to them and that's where they have, and then they'd go back into the city and tell people what they saw, right? So that's the Valley of Vision. Verse five. Um, for, Yah- for the Lord Yahweh of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the Valley of Vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. He has taken away the covering of Judah. Verse 12. In that day... The Lord Yahweh of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, right? This is, this is the nation, this is the city, this is the place, the valley, where uh, the people should have known God the most and heard God the clearest. And yet this is where they denied him and defied him the, the most defiantly, right? Uh, this is where they were the most rebellious, this is, this is the valley of vision. All the visions were given to the prophets here. So if anyone's ever going to listen, it should be in this place. And that's kind of the, the irony and the contrast given here, right? Like in this place where I've spoken over and over and over again, this is where you're defying me. In the valley of vision, that's where judgment's going to come. Trampling and tumult and confusion, right? Battering down of walls, shouting to the mountains, etc. The covering of Judah, the protection on Judah is gone, right? Give me a, a final nation is judged in this second series of oracles, and that's Phoenicia. That's chapter 23. Um, Specifically, by the way, this will talk about Tyre, the city of Tyre, the city of Tarshish, the city of Sidon, the city of uh, Cyprus. These are all parts of Phoenicia, 
Okay, so it'll talk about cities, but it's referring to Phoenicia. Chapter 23, verse 1. The oracle concerning Tyre, wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. Verse 14. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is laid waste. Verse 17. At the end of 70 years, Yahweh will visit Tyre, and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to Yahweh, and he will, uh, it will not be stored or hoarded, but merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before Yahweh. So you have this, uh, you have this uh, historic fulfillment and then end times fulfillment, right? Uh, Phoenicia was conquered by Assyria, like everybody else who hasn't been conquered by Assyria at that time, right? Uh, Assyria took out almost the entire known world. Uh, and so during that time, it restricted Phoenicia from engaging in its commercial business activity, right? Uh, Phoenicia was a harbor kind of empire, right? Tyre, Sidon, they, they had these big seaports and harbors. And, uh, and so from 700 BC to 630 BC, during that time of the, the Assyrian rule over them, they were not allowed to, to uh, conduct business over their harbors. And so Tyre is judged, Tarshish is judged, uh, Sidon is judged, right? The, uh, Cyprus is judged. They're all, uh, they're all judged because uh, they can't conducting their business. And then after 70 years, God says, but then everything's going to go back to, uh, you know, to reopening Phoenicia, right? Uh, they're, they're, they're done with their lockdown after 70 years. Um, when that happens, seaports, universally seaports are uh, connected to prostitution that they, they just always went hand in hand. So, uh, God says that uh, she'll go back to her wages and will prostitute herself with the kingdoms of the world. And then you get this odd shift into the end times, right? Saying that, uh, that Phoenicia will do all this stuff and then everything that it makes will eventually be given to Yahweh God. Meaning when, uh, when that happens again in the, in the end times, the, the Phoenician people, their, their kingdom will be brought to an end and all this, the, the wealth that they've amassed and gathered, that'll all be taken in and, and given to God. Either because uh, there's there's a, a large conversion, but more likely because they're just destroyed and then uh, and then their stuff is forfeit, right? Okay, so that takes you through the two first uh, the, the first and second oracles, uh, series of oracles from God about the judgment of the nations. Now this third set of oracles changes tone. It's not about the judgment necessarily of the nations, but it's just about how everything's going to end up at the very, very end, right? It's, uh, he, I, I, the prophet Isaiah just goes full throttle into the end times prophecies. Um, it'll take a look at the final state of the world, particularly with, uh, with the message for the people of Israel, which includes Israel and Judah, right? Uh, Chapter 24, verse 1. This chapter will be about the judgment, right? It'll always be judgment, then it'll be hope. So chapter 24 is about the judgment. It says in verse 1, Behold, Yahweh will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Right? This is, uh, this is the, the promise that like, not only will the peoples of the earth, the nations of the earth, be, uh, be judged and, and, and destroyed, but it says that even the surface of the earth will be changed and twisted, right? Verse five, uh, for they have transgressed the laws and violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. 
That means that there will not be many survivors in this time. And if you just kind of follow uh, Revelation, you'll see how many millions of people die during the tribulation, during the end times. Uh, Verse 21. On that day, Yahweh will punish the host of heaven. That's weird. On that day, Yahweh will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. Well, there's no surprise if you've been paying attention to everything before that God's enemies will be punished, right? That's a, you're not going to be able to escape that, that idea if you've been reading this book. But what's weird is how uh, the description of this punishment of all these people that are destroyed. Now, if, if a people is destroyed and only few men are left, what's happened to most of the people? They have died, right? And if they've died, you'd think that that's their punishment. That's kind of the end of it. And yet it's weird. It says that all of these people will be gathered up and put in prison. And then after many days, they'll be punished. And so what could that be talking about? And it seems as though uh, he's talking about the millennial kingdom, which when Jesus returns, he he goes to war with, with Babylon, the nations, right? And then he establishes his kingdom in Jerusalem for a thousand years. That's a millennium, millennial kingdom. And uh, that, during that thousand years, Satan and his demons are, uh, are chained up. And then, uh, you know, there's uh, Christ ruling on the earth in Jerusalem. That's when all this end time stuff, the nations pouring in and stuff, the lion uh, being able to hang out with the lamb and stuff like, you know, the, the uh, animals, no more predatorial animals and stuff. Uh, All that stuff happens during that thousand year period. And then after that, Satan is released and all these people are released. He gathers up all these armies uh, to to try to fight one last fight against Jesus. And then Jesus kind of takes and plucks him up and throws him into the final judgment, which is the lake of fire, right? That's, that's final hell. So uh, the, the discussion here says that the, uh, the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth which is just a weird thing to say. Uh, it means that there, there are angels that God is going to punish. Well, which angels? The ones that have been serving him? No. Which angels? The angels that fell away and rebelled against him. Those are demons, right? Uh, that host of heaven, they'll be thrown into the prison along with the, the kings of the earth. They'll be thrown into the prison. Now, aren't the, most of those kings dead and defeated? Yes. And yet still, they're thrown into this prison with a bunch of, uh, of demons, right? With, with the host of heaven. There, there they are. And after many days, namely a thousand years, then they're released for a final war and they're, they're judged. They're, uh, they're thrown into final hell, which is their punishment, right? That's, that's kind of the short answer. Uh, honestly, here, uh, here's a challenge for you, okay? If you have any questions about the book of Revelation, ask Vegeta, He's been through Revelation like 20 or 30 times and, uh, and he remembers like all of it. And so just uh, pick his brain and ask him anything and then, and then see if you could stump him. All right. Uh, the, uh, the next part of the, the oracle moves from judgment into the, the idea of hope, right? And that's going to be in chapter 25. Whenever God gives judgment, he always gives hope. Verse 25, he says, uh, Oh, Yahweh, you are my God. This is coming from Isaiah, right? Oh, Yahweh, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. Verse six, on this mountain, that's Mount Zion, on this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples, 
not just the Israelites, but make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Verse 8, He will swallow up death forever, and, and the Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Um, if you notice there, there's a, a little bit of a contrast, right? Remember when, uh, when Judah was like, look, this is what happened to Cush in Egypt. This is what happens to the worldly powers that we trusted in. And, and it amounted in, in damnation and destruction, right? Here, it's saying, this is, uh, this is what happens for those who have waited on the Lord. This is what happens to those who allowed God to be the avenger, right? For God to come and bring about his justice in his time. Even if it's outside of our lifetimes, this is what happens for them. It's that God will prepare a feast for all peoples. It's not a one-time event. It's an end times event. It's, a, it's, it's an eternal event. It's a statement that there'll be celebration, exuberant joy for those who have waited upon the Lord, right? Chapter 26, verse 19, it kind of moves into the song of praise. It says, uh, but it says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust Awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Verse 21. For behold, Yahweh is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. Ultimately, this is the thing that you got to decide on, right? Do you believe... What God is saying here, it's saying nation after nation is judged, but when Christ returns, he'll be in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, and on that mountain, he'll have a, a, a feast of rich food for all peoples, right? Uh, not as a one-time event, that's a new way of living. That is, that is reality at that point for God's people. And the ones that are there are the ones that waited for him to return, the ones who lived expectantly, right? Not just memorized it theologically, but it means that the way that they lived showed that they were living for that moment, not this moment, right? They're living for that life, not this life. That's the life that's truly life. And so even in how they, they hoard up their wealth, they're not storing up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. They're storing it up in heaven, right? That's the way that, that these people are living. These, these are the ones who are living expectantly, waiting for the Lord. Uh, they, they, didn't, uh, they didn't invest here, they invested there. And Jesus is, to them, Jesus is life. They know that, right? Jesus is a source of life, sustainer of life, purpose of life, meaning of life. Jesus is life. So life is where Jesus is. So right now, this is where, where sin and curse are kind of on the earth and dominant. This is not the, the, the real picture. The real picture of life is where Jesus is, where we are with Jesus. Uh, that's what we're waiting for. And it, it, might, uh, it might come after we're dead, right? Jesus might not return during our lifetime, maybe. I mean, that's what's happened for the past 2,000 years. People, you know, believers have lived and died, and Jesus hasn't returned yet, right? So it might happen after our lifetime, and yet still... It says, rejoice because uh, your dead shall live, the body shall rise, you who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy because that is where your life really is, right? That's the, that's the whole point of it. Even if his return is after your lifetime, long after your lifetime, you'll rise again with him because he rose again. He, he's the 
the example, you'll rise again uh, and you'll live. And that's where all the promises will be fulfilled. Well, then he gives a, a, a final promise, our, our, our last look in these chapters. At, at chapter 27, verse 12, it's this promise to, to the people of Israel, which is Israel and Judah, right? Verse, uh, chapter 27, verse 12. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, Yahweh will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship Yahweh on the holy mountain. God's promise, if you understand, God's promise to every nation is fulfilled, right? And it's to, to the nations on a broad scale and one by one, there's judgment and there's redemption for those who, who turn to him, right? God's promise to every nation is fulfilled and to every individual is fulfilled. But think of these nations, Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Cush, Egypt, Edom, Arabia, Phoenicia, right? His promise, even to the nation of Israel and to the nation of Judah, all of it will come to pass. Everything he promised to all of those nations has come to pass. Everything they said he would historically. And then everything that he's saying will happen in the end times. You just got to make a decision on this. Will it happen? God has proven himself time and time again. Do you trust him on this? Justice against iniquity. Redemption to those who turn from their ways and trust upon the Lord, namely Jesus. Right? Those are promises that he makes. So then where do you land? Let's get some final thoughts on this. I know it's a lot. I know we went through 15 chapters, right? But uh, walk away with just these, these very simple thoughts. First, God has opinions about nations. Because we, we kind of go through uh, our, our Christian faith thinking very individualistically about ourselves. You know, what's God's will for my life? Can you pray for my family? Can you pray for my problems? Can you pray that I get into this school? Pray that I get this job? Pray that I get this raise or promotion? Pray that I... And you kind of have, uh, have this very easy tendency to, to fall into thinking just about what you want to pray for yourself. And God has... Uh, has every care for you just like you do, and infinitely more. But what we might be missing is that God has opinions about nations. And when nations veer off course, he promises judgment. And that's something we might not take very seriously in our individualistic society. We don't think very much as a nation. How many of us think we're very patriotic as, as Americans? You know, it doesn't happen very often. We as a people must help steer our nation in the right direction, properly, peacefully, right? Not, not with an insurrection, not with violence and that kind of stuff, but to use your power as a citizen. You can vote, you can, you know, you can inform people, you can do a little bit of research, that kind of stuff. You can, you can do something, right? And certainly you can pray because the, the, the final solution to our worldly problems is not worldly powers or worldly ideas, Right? We, don't just, we ought not to vote in worldly policies that unbelievers agree with because we think that that's just the solution to our worldly issues. Like, we don't separate stuff like that. Everything's spiritual. Uh, don't, don't hire Assyria to fight for you. That doesn't go well for God's people. Right? Seek God, call, uh, cry out to him, call him out, and, and say, we need you. 
right? And then do what you got to vote if, 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 if you can vote and all that stuff, right? Because real faith shows up in action. It's not just, I really feel like this is right, but then I'm going to do nothing about it. You got to go and do something, right? It's the kind of action that isn't violent, but is peaceable and responsible, right? And, uh, Honestly, I got to say, uh, when this book keeps calling us to pray, when this book keeps calling us to, to think as a nation or as a people, when it, when it starts doing that, we can just, we can hear it in a sermon and be like, oh, okay, yeah, I should. And then do nothing about it for the rest of the week. And how shameful when that happens, right? If this is not going to turn you to pray for your nation and for, for your, your leaders and stuff, if this, is, if this isn't going to turn you to do that, what have you done? You've heard the word and then walked away and, and done nothing, and it'll be like the Valley of Vision. You've heard all this from God. He's warned you with everything that the, the prophet is saying, and you've done nothing, right? Look, if, if you need help praying, jump into our morning prayer meeting, right? We have a, a prayer meeting that happens right before service, 1030, right? Jump into that and, uh, and just join the prayer team as they lead us, right? Because we pray through these kinds of things. If you, if, if you need help, if, it, if, you, if you don't have the, the, the discipline to just pray by yourself during the week and stuff, if you feel like oh, I need someone to kind of guide me through it, jump into that. That'd be great. A different thought to have is that every promise that God has made about Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Cush, Edom, Arabia, Phoenicia has happened. If that's true that it's happened in the past, then every promise that he makes about what's going to happen in the future is going to happen in the future. He's proven himself. And that ought to engender in us an absolute trust. Right? Because more than ever, the world, the society around us, uh, is oppositional, antagonistic, and mocking and ridiculing toward the Christian faith. And it becomes easy to just kind of glide into that and, and, and nod our heads so that we don't get laughed at. And uh, even then, we try to passively just let unbelievers uh, do their thing. Even, even in how we try to influence the nation, we don't want to vote anything with Christian values because we don't want to impose. But What's going to happen if we let the nation go the way the nation wants to go? What's going to happen when the restrainer of evil, which is the Holy Spirit in us, uh, when we choose to mute him and just not restrain evil, and we just let the nation go in its direction? When we give these people over to, uh, to their passions and their desires, what happens? Judgment happens. That's, that's the promise of God every single time. If God promised uh, stuff would happen to these nations in the past because they did whatever they wanted, and no one restrained them. That's exactly what will happen to the United States of America or whatever country you're in if you don't exercise what you can to, to restrain evil, to be a light. Final thought is uh, all the people that end up with Jesus in his kingdom, everyone that ends up there at that feast, you know, where they have like fine aged wine, which I don't care about, but then they have like marrow, which is from bone, meat, which I care about. Uh, all those people that are there in Jesus' kingdom at the end, none of them earned it. Now, you know that theologically, right? Uh, but it's easy for us to think uh, that the world is sinful, but we're Christians. The world is sinful and lost, but, but we worship God. Uh, and while that's true, thinking like that is something you have to be very careful of so that it does not remove from us the responsibility to repent and to trust, right? To turn from, from our sinful desires and then to depend on Jesus' godly instruction. Repentance is not a one-time act that comes to a Christian. It's a pattern of life that begins when you begin as a Christian. 
and continues when you continue as a Christian. Repentance and trust are two sides of the same coin, heads and tails, right? Repentance is turning away from your sin and faith is turning toward Jesus, right? They're, they're the same thing. Now, when does a, a Christian have faith? It should be when he's a Christian. When does a Christian repent? When he's a Christian. They are by nature the same thing. So as Christians then, you know, we, we are by, by our human nature, our sinful nature, our flesh, uh, we're inclined towards sin. Uh, the only way we know we're pursuing Christ, the only way you're pursuing Christ is when you're repenting, right? Because by default, you're going the wrong way. And only when you're repenting and trusting in Jesus are you going the right way. You're either part of the nations who justify themselves in how they live and will be judged, or you follow the Savior by repentance and faith. And by doing that, even after death, that's where you'll truly find life. I can't hear you, but you can hear you and God can hear you. So if you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. God, it's not easy to talk about the subject of judgment. It's a dark and unpleasant subject. And uh, if we're not careful, Lord, we start to think that that's the unloving way to speak. And yet, uh, we know that you are a holy, righteous, and just God with an absolute standard of right. And all have sinned and fall short of your glory. No one is righteous, no, not one. Only you, only God is good. And so we hope, Lord, that we would listen to the herald that's telling us that nations after nations after nations are judged by the Almighty, by the Holy One of Israel, because they do whatever they want. They go their own way and they justify themselves in it. And you judge your own people, your own ethnic people of Israel in the nations of Israel and Judah because they let that happen. And by letting that happen, that bred in them an agreement with the nations, not just tolerance, but then cooperation and alliance. God, we pray that you would keep the church pure. We pray that you would call the church always to repentance, to keep thinking through where we are at, where our, our flesh and our sinful nature is at, and where we stand diametrically opposed to the world because we know Jesus is real. And we pray that we would live in such a way that we would bring the kingdom here. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to use whatever power we have as a citizen to bring that about, to take seriously uh, the opportunities we have to think prayerfully through every decision and to depend on you for solutions and then to act them out, to be the means by which you influence this world. And we hope, Lord, in doing that, that, uh, that we would trust absolutely in your promises to know that you are faithful God, that you have decided the fates of nations long beforehand and they've come to pass. And so certainly you can take care of individuals and your people as a whole in the future. We look forward to the return of Jesus. We look forward to, to the day we get to stand with him in his kingdom, to celebrate with him. And we worship you, not just for your grace and mercy and steadfast love, but also for your holiness and righteousness and justice. 
Grow us in this way. Lord, help us to have a full and complete understanding of who you are, to love what you love and to hate what you hate. Make us better and deeper disciples that way, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.